Your art was the prettiest art of all the art. You're listening to Magic Camp. Thanks for joining us. I am Paul Anderson. And I am Ben Anderson. And if this is your first time joining us, which it likely is, considering this is our second episode, including an intro, um, this is Magic Camp, a podcast for anyone interested in art, power, and with a little bit of time after school. Thanks for joining us. Um, Ben has a pretty exciting episode planned for us today. It, it might get a little dense at times. Um, we're just going to be talking about his all-time favorite artist, mm-hmm. which is Jackson Pollock. He, he did all those crazy marble paintings, if you remember. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about Jackson Pollock, Ben, and why you like him so much? Jackson Pollock or Jack the Dripper? <laughs> ah, that's good. I've never heard that before. Was a cowboy, a drunk, uh, killed himself and another young woman while driving drunk. Oh. Tragic end, uh, but the first great American painter, and that's why we're talking about him today, or at least that's how he was christened by Clement Greenberg um, and other of the intelligentsia of the New York uh, art scene, who were looking to launch New York and America more broadly onto the global stage as the center of high culture in the world. Um, and we're we're picking up this theme because it kind of has everything that we want to talk about on this podcast. Power, politics, money, uh, yeah, it, it kind of has it all, as well as uh, covert operations. So specifically, the headline we're talking about, you may have seen this floating around, probably not. I mean, I've, I've, I've dabbled in this sort of stuff before, and I never heard this until I started digging, but the CIA was involved in boosting abstract expressionism. That's the headline. That's what I say when I hold a flashlight under my chin to make you feel spooky and scared. Um, but generally, the, the bigger picture is how the ruling class uh, curates and produces this commodity called high culture, um, what its uses are, and uh, whether it's redeemable for us today is kind of the questions we're looking at. So Right. And this question or this experience of seeing maybe a headline about how the CIA had its fingers or hands in something that happened 70 years ago... I've had that experience, and sometimes I look at it and say, okay, so what? Why, why did they do that? Um, it, it's not necessarily useful to simply know that the CIA was involved in something. Um, it's more interesting to consider what the purpose they had, what yeah, purpose what, they had for even What they saw that. in it. Well, why was this considered politically beneficial to right. prop up one person versus another? Um, and I think a lot of us have begun to uh, become more aware of these types of things. I think if you've, maybe if you've discovered this podcast, uh, chances are you have at least some interest in questions such as these relating to politics and, um, you know, the CIA operating in plain sight um, with things that actually affect our lives. Um, So, Ben, before we dive into uh, the text here, um, into the life of the illustrious Jackson Pollock, can you tell us a little bit about um, abstract expressionism? Um, if you could maybe give us a, a Cliff Notes uh, definition of that term, that might be putting you on the spot. Yeah. Um, to get out my isms book. Maybe just just take us down memory lane. What what did you learn in your freshman art history class at Savannah College of Art and Design yeah. about art uh, abstract expressionism? 
Uh, I think the way it, it's framed for me is this is a seen as a move in the art world from uh, subject or content, um, which was at a tight, say, coming out of the Renaissance and into the academic tradition of realism. And uh, especially during the academic period, the, the pinnacle of art was history painting. It was painting scenes from the Bible right. or whatever. Um, and it was there was a content in the art, and that was just as important as the formal qualities. Two, in the modern period, much more of an emphasis and an exploration of the form, the painting itself, and somewhat uh, agnostic towards its content. Um, and I think, at least the way I've, I've always thought of it, or it's been told to me, is that in Jackson Pollock, Abstract Expressionism, it's a move beyond even talking about form or content to process, in that what you're seeing when you look at a Jackson Pollock, which is completely incidental, I mean, to this conversation, is you don't have to see the work at all to 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 experience it because it's about the art conversation what is art the process of making it and what a pollock painting is is uh supposed to capture that that lived experience or the process of a man flinging his fluids against a a canvas yes and in an explicitly sexual way mm -hmm. uh he's he is pouring his male essence onto the canvas uh, and for the the rubes in the audience, like myself, abstract expressionism is probably the first artistic movement that inspired museum goers everywhere to look at paintings on the wall and say, "I could have done this." <laughs> yeah. So, if if it and is the you know type what of painting That's that your the point. uncle right yeah that your uncle will get ang angry about because it looks crazy and like he could have done it himself, then. Chances are it was in some way inspired by Jack Jackson. Yeah, I mean, and to be clear, neither the New York School or Jackson Pollock, first of all, pioneered abstraction. I mean, abstraction sure. was at its height 30 years ago. So there's a big difference between a Pollock and a Kandinsky, neither of which, ha neither of which have an object or a subject. Um, but the, the difference is in the formal arrangement that Kandinsky would be doing using the elements of design and using uh, all the principles and formal qualities to arrange the line and the shapes and the colors to do something uh, formally, right? Pollock is kind of the abolition of, of that because not only does it, is it non-objective, it's not a picture of anything, but it's really saying it's like kind of a big fuck you to the formal elements because it's right. just throw this shit on the, on the canvas because, I mean, I kind of get it too because... He's, I think, kind of getting beyond the mystification of line and color and what, what like, the spiritual essence of visual things, basically, right. to this is about, this is about one man's experience against the canvas, I guess. I, I don't know. Um, so that, and it's also important to say, but he, you know, it's not like they also pioneered expressionism. Right. Kathy Kolwitz is, you could consider an expressionist because of the energy she has in her drawings. I mean, she's doing these things quick. Every stroke counts, right? She's not like, there's not a high degree of polish where she's rendering over every mark to make it smooth and realistic. She throws down a line and, and you see that. You see the artist against the paper, but for her, it's done in a highly skilled and planned manner because she's, she's a realist. Um, so, I mean, all those things should make you think about why this movement matters, <laughs> exactly what they were doing. 
I think they're doing something, you know, it, it was interesting on its own, in its own merits, but we'll get there. Um, right. So let's maybe change gears from the aesthetic, which we'll come back to that in a little bit and talk about why Jackson Pollock was aesthetically, um, why this aligned or why this was useful for the purposes, political purposes are going to talk about, but why don't you give us a little, um, context or introduction of our primary text today yeah what's this book so the the big picture for this is the cultural cold war and we're reading a book by the same name the cultural cold war the cia in the world of arts and letters by francis francis stoner saunders and it's 30 or 40 years old at this point but it's a seminal investigative look into uh covert actions done by the american state uh to influence or inject itself into high culture at home but uh more importantly abroad and what they're what she talks about in this book is how uh you know a few few uh tweedy gentlemen from princeton and yale uh working with the cia uh had a vision of uh projecting american culture into europe so as to win over their friends uh or potentially neutral people in france in britain from Soviet influence. Um, so that's the big picture is that the day that peace was declared after World War II, America set about to secure its place as the new world power, as the center of empire, um, and to snuff out, I mean, the Soviets. And the degree to which it was an even fight, I don't really care to debate. Um, this is the age of Stalin, so you know there's not many good guys here. But uh, I think we're gonna we're particularly talking about what America was doing, and there's no doubt that the the, the friendly the boys in back uh, in the CIA, whose life mission and who had a what seems to me, and I think Saunders paints a picture of a pathological obsession with this great game of de- out tricking and out outsmarting and defeating the Soviets. Uh, influenced or, or colored everything that America was doing through the end of the American century. Right. One thing I found very interesting just about the early chapters of this book, um, and we'll jump ahead to a, a later chapter, but um, was the fact that Europe was essentially, or Western Europe, was the battleground at this yeah. time, the cultural battleground between American free enterprise West and the Soviet uh, you know Russia, and so what was happening culturally in Europe after World War II was essentially a, a wasteland, and which made it a fertile, fertile territory for the types of you know state-backed cultural movements uh, that we're going to talk about here. Yeah, and revolution was in the air. I mean, particularly in the beginning of the 20th century. Um, I mean, in Germany especially, it it almost seemed inevitable that there would be a communist revolution. And then lo and behold, it happened in Russia to a monarchy, you know, where it was never supposed to happen in this backwards pre-industrial place. And a lot of people were excited or scared shitless. Um, And things definitely changed after World War II and uh, changed, I guess, after the Stalin revelations. But um, the point being that the ideology had a lot of purchase, especially on the intelligentsia in Europe. And most, most of those people were left-leaning at least. Um, and so, you know, these guys in the CIA, their their main project in all of this in the cultural Cold War is, I mean, forget the American public. Like, 
that that was the territory of McCarthy, um, and that's a whole different ball game. But in Europe, they they strategically saw that they had to win over people who were left of communist or on the fence. Um, anyone who wasn't, you know, a, a died in the wool Stalinist or fully committed, they needed to break off from the communist left and and put on the side of freedom, American freedom. Right. So before we move into the details of that, I think for especially for for somebody who isn't familiar with this with this movement, which I wasn't even really aware of this until very recently, um, when you put this book in my hands, maybe we could just kind of tease out that seeming contradiction that is probably cropping up in uh, listeners' minds right now, which is, wait a minute, I thought that abstract, <clears throat> excuse me, abstract expressionism, postmodernism, art, these, I thought these things were communist, mm-hmm. you know, according to, like you said, to the McCarthy's of, of the time, how did, uh, how was the American public perceiving things like abstract expressionism at the time and and how does that uh does that play a role in um the movements of the cia yeah i think saunders sets up that contradiction really well and that's why this is such a fruitful thing to talk about is modern art or avant-garde art more broadly or especially abstract expressionism is it anarchic and left-wing and corrosive to conservative values or is it is it good for uh, for building up that sort of American uh, American way of life, basically? And that's the tension there. And there was people on both sides saying opposite things. So, so this is from uh, from Congressman George John Darrow. It's a kind of a famous address that he gave called "Modern Art Shackled to Communism" in 1949. Cubism aims to destroy by design disorder. Futurism aims to destroy by the machine myth, which I have no idea what that is. Dadaism aims to destroy by ridicule. Expressionism aims to destroy by aping the primitive and insane. Abstractionism aims to destroy by creation of brainstorms. (laughs) Uh, Surrealism aims to destroy by the denial of reason. Um, And that view is very common in uh, flyover parts of the country in middle America, uh, that all modern art is communistic. It's chaotic and wild and um, unchristian. Um, And I mean, even so far as to say that it's a means of espionage. It's an aspect of Soviet uh, influence and invasion and uh, modern artists are tools of the Kremlin or they're they're even exporting secrets about America through their coded paintings. Um, So that's pretty common. And I think we could talk about that, whether that's true at all. Um, Do you mean is... Abstract expressionism communist? Absolutely. Just kidding. Um, well, yeah, so we could talk about what, you know, what proof or, or truth is there to those claims. Yeah. I mean, considering the fact that as this book points out, people like Jackson Pollock and people in the New York School and abstract expressionists were uh, personally, I mean, many of them did claim to be affiliated with right. left-wing movements. Right. But... What that means for the art itself is another question. Right. Yeah. Uh, almost all of them have some connection to the left or were fellow travelers. But I think as the history moves on, uh, that's the big question is, was there anything real in that? Or, I mean, how is a painting going to be subversive anyways or, or threats power? Right. Um, but all that to say, I mean, there 
a lot of these movements were radical and there probably was good reason for these conservatives to be worried. So let me just call out some of these here. So this is from a, a manifesto by the Dadaists, which, you know, is 20 years earlier. So this is what Dadaism demands. The international revolutionary union of all creative in and intellectual men and women on the basis of radical communism. Two, the introduction of progressive unemployment through comprehensive mechanization of every field of activity, which is an interesting point that we might talk about of Progressive unemployment? Uh, right. Sounds it, pretty sick. I know, right. The, the point being that art is only possible when you're free from the burden of right. the market and having to make a living from it. Mm -hmm. um, only by unemployment does it become possible for an individual to achieve certainty as to the truth of life and finally become accustomed to experience. Right. Um, what do you think of unemployment, Paul? Paul's been unemployed <laughs> several times. <clears throat> Off and on. Uh, yeah, I think, I think there's truth to that. Um, but at the same time, I think that the idea of progressive unemployment, whatever that means, is, I mean, you can't you can't benefit from unemployment in this structure as it exists yeah, right, right now because if you're unemployed, then you're uh, under threat to any a number of other forces, um, which could be equally as demanding or, or uh, detrimental to your art. Right. Right. Yeah. Which hence the uh, communist revolution part. Right. Uh, number three: immediate expropriation of property socialization and communal feeding of all further the erection of cities of light and gardens which will belong to society as a whole and prepare man for a state of freedom pretty sick stuff yeah uh, and the rest of it gets very dadaist and i don't know what they're talking about right so a statement like that um you could be forgiven as a conservative republican senator uh for thinking that um these values are in some way connected to the values represented in the art itself of those uh, those painters yep. and those artists. Um, but that being said, I think that section you just read, not of the Dadaists, but of George Don Darrow, the, the Republican senator, does, I think, speak to a really important part of this discussion, um, which is that that very type of thinking, that... that Abstract expressionism, postmodern art is, uh, you know, amoral or immoral, communist, um, was a po fairly popular belief and one that people, you know, the CIA people that you're talking about, these kind of tweed jacketed, you know, covert operatives, realized was actually a, th a pretty huge threat to American interests abroad in that it symbolized to European intellectuals mm -hmm. that Americans were Philistines, right? right. So yeah. as long as there are Republican senators saying that, that art that isn't strictly representational is uh, communist and, and uh, immoral and Satanist and all these different things, then we're never going to win over those, those brainy academic uh, avant-garde Europeans who are on the fence between uh, Stalinism and slightly left of, uh, or, or slightly right of Stalinism. Right. And the reason it's hard for us to intuitively grasp today was because the spec political spectrum was so much bigger right. in the 30s, 40s, going from actual communism to fascism. Um, and so I think there were probably 
wise, I, maybe not. We could talk about whether this was successful at all, but the more enlightened aspects of the American state, enlightened, you know, in scare quotes, um, the intelligentsia saw it as imperative to team up with the non-communist left and to clump together as much as they could, everyone from the non-communist left, the liberals, the centrists, all the way to the right. And they did get pretty far to the right in their allegiances. Mm -hmm. Basically anybody but a communist. Um, and you could argue if that strategy worked or not, but um, certainly we had quickly gotten to the point, certainly in America, where <clears throat> that, that far left part of the spectrum had been defeated, and what we were then left with was basically liberal to far right, right. or centrist to far right. And what then these guys in this, you know, these liberal CIA guys or whoever they are, were not then prepared for the fact that now they're the far left, now they're the enemy, and they, that they would have a McCarthy um, or later on a Reagan, whatever, ready to chop them off of the political spectrum. Right. And I feel, you know, that's what the Democratic Party in the past 40 years has failed to realize is that they'd been fighting to their left for so long they don't, didn't realize that they had basically defeated that that enemy at home at least and therefore they were completely unprotected on, on their right and that's how you get you know what we have maybe not today but how what we had five years ago with you know fox news saying that obama's a communist right all of a sudden they're getting absolutely destroyed from their right right today we're in a time when maybe the left part of the spectrum is opening up again which makes it imperative to understand that the center is or the center of liberals now again are going to be fighting to their left mm -hmm. and trying to join up with those to the right. But I say all that to put this in context right. um, and to contextualize, especially liberalism. I mean, most of these CIA people were liberals. So like socially, culturally, um, not surprisingly, maybe over a couple of decades, many of them become further and further right. Irving Kristol is a big character in this book. He was the first editor of Encounter Magazine. Um, and Saunders spends quite a bit of time on Encounter Magazine. It was um, a literature magazine run out of London. Um, it was meant to be very high culture, uh, somewhat political. And it was a CIA front. I mean, that that one was directly a CIA front. Irving Crystal was the first editor. He, of course, later evolved out of that kind of liberal attitude into the father of neoconservative and gave us the wonderful Bill Crystal that we have with us today. So you can see the, the arc that tends to play out there. I could say a little more than that, but basically the substance of this book um, She's basically uncovering the, the structures that the CIA was operating to funnel money to voices that they, that they wanted to be promoted, especially in Europe, but also Latin America and Asia and anywhere where they could sm smell communists. Um, and that's through literature, it was through music, and it was through visual arts. And particularly she focuses on the main organ responsible for a lot of this, the Congress for Cultural Freedom. So they were putting on art shows in Europe. They were sending American orchestras abroad. Uh, they were setting up magazines, funding magazines. And um, there's a spectrum of where they were just throwing some money somebody's way and maybe they didn't know where it was coming from too. Directly, they were involved in the editing process and using something as a propaganda organ. Um, so that's kind of the backdrop of this. 
I would also like to point out that, you know, this is in the, the realm of soft power. This is the particular people who are involved with this, Joselson and Tom Braden, uh, were lettered guys who probably really believed in the power of arts and letters to influence hearts and minds. But they're on, they're in the same organization that is doing hard power coups and killings and very disgusting covert stuff. And that's happening already in the 40s and the 50s. And certainly by the 70s, you've got uh, death squads being trained in America and sent to Latin America to torture and kill peasants. And there's always a CIA guy standing in the room watching. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, I think we could get that out of the way that, uh, I mean, the CIA is completely unredeemable. It should give you chills to hear that the CIA is involved in anything. Mm -hmm. um, if, if that's not a given, I would just say, I'm not, I don't want to bother trying to convince anybody. Um, but wait, have you seen Jack Ryan? <laughs> it's pretty sick. That's true. I like Jim. But continue. So, um, yeah, getting into the to the crux of this, um, coming to the end of the 40s, while this cultural cold war is going on, there's developing in New York, what could be called the, yeah, I mean, this has all been framed by these people, but um, the first kind of genuinely American art movement uh, in abstract expressionism and the New York school. And as that's developing, it's hard to say exactly at what level of maturity it was at or what level of prominence people in the CIA realized that this is amenable to our cause. Um, and so the things we're saying about uh, modern art, specifically abstract expressionism being anarchic or communistic, they thought the exact opposite. They thought, first of all, this is an American art, a true American art. It's produced here. It's free of European. It's not just copying European isms. So we could talk about that, the framing of it, particularly in nationalist terms, which is just everywhere. And then second of all, that it not only is it good just because these guys are from our team, but this is this is uniquely indicative of the American way of life and abstract expressionism being what Nelson Rockefeller called free enterprise painting. This is something that the Soviets can't do, not only because they're you know under a dictatorship, but because this is this is something that can only happen where freedom flourishes mm -hmm. um, and. Yeah, was seen was seen as the remedy to Soviet art, Soviet realism, and just to get the kind of the details out of the way up front, um, my impression from the book is that abstract expressionism did have plenty of momentum and grip on the art world in America by by its own merit, so to speak, but that what the CIA really did was help them get purchase abroad in Europe. And so at key times in the late 40s or the early 50s, well, long before abstract expressionism was um, accepted as a genuinely great movement in Europe, the CIA funded or put on, um, I mean, in a couple of cases directly, um, you know, conceived of traveling exhibitions or in other cases funneled money to or supported to uh, or gave support to exhibitions in Europe that were um, shows of the new great American art. And those included Pollock and de Kooning and Rothko showing their work in Europe and telling them why it was great and why uh, New York was this, the new center of the art world. And America, contrary to what you think, is not just 
Looney Tunes and Hollywood, it's it's high art, it's high culture. Um, we're cool too. Like, we could please like us. Um, mm -hmm. So I would say I, my my takeaway from this is when when you're talking about like how heavily was the CIA involved? I'd say they were instrumental in um, gaining acceptance for abstract expressionism on the world stage in, in the in the West. Um, that's that's as much as as I think you could say. Right. So. Maybe we could just, you could touch a little bit more on why Jackson Pollock was such a useful tool of, of all the abstract, abstract, geez, abstract expressionists. Why was he the most useful for these purposes and how did he embody uh, the, per, the traits that you just described? Yeah, um, I think first we could say why he was considered a great, the great American painter, mm -hmm. his Americanness. So here's from Bud Hopkins, who's an artist. He was the great American painter. If you conceive of such a person, first of all, he had to be a real American, not a transplant European. He should have a big macho American virtues. He should be a rough and tumble American, uh, American turn, ideally. And if he is a cowboy, so much the better. Certainly not an Easterner, not someone who went to Harvard. He shouldn't be influenced by Europeans so much as he should be influenced by our own, the Mexican, American, and Indians, and so on. He should come out of the native soil, not out of Picasso and Matisse. He should be allowed the great American vice, the Hemingway vice of being a drunk. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, Hemingway, uh, sorry, uh, Pollock was born in Wyoming. He only lived there for a couple years. And then he was in between California and Arizona, which that alone was enough to conceive of him as a rancher and a cowboy. He had a boisterous, big personality. He was a drunk. Um, and the way he painted was loud and chauvinistic. Um, and his paintings were in your face and offensive to some degree. He would piss in the fireplace at parties. Um, and uh, yeah, he was exactly that, that type of spirit. Um, the West un unencumbered. Right. It, it gives me pause. I mean, I, I think there's a couple points in hearing this that maybe a listener can be uh can relate to a sense of disappointment with some of this you know and i think i totally agree that anything that is co-signed and backed by the cia should should give you chills up your spine um and that's precisely what we're trying to do here is is look for the truth and not and not you know delude ourselves with romantic fantasies about the history of american art or what art is uh, even if we have a fond experience of those um, movements or those artists. I have seen some Jackson Pollocks in person, um, and they're pretty cool. They're pretty great. I mean, it's really difficult to separate now, um, even outside of the CIA-related stuff, separate um, my experience of those paintings from what I now understand to be the cult of personality and of, of fame and wealth that is now associated with those works of art, which is maybe something we'll explore in later episodes, is how is our our current experience of art distorted or, or framed, distorted or framed by, um, you know, the way the culture has treated and thought about those things. And like I said, I don't necessarily have um, a strong connection to Jackson Pollock, but I have had an experience of being 
overwhelmed and impressed by yep. by the paintings. Actually, after coming in skeptical to them, the Art Institute of Chicago has some of those gigantic um, Pollocks, uh, and part of it is just the scale of experiencing those things. But there's no denying that. Also, some of it is I've been told for years and years by implicitly and explicitly that this is what is considered important American art. Um, but even with other names that kind of pop up in this book as part of uh, part of the movement of abstract expressionism that was propped up by the uh, the Congress for Cultural Progress. Freedom. Free, freedom. Um, like George O'Keefe, for example. Right. Who's a painter that... How do you feel about George O'Keefe? Uh, I like her. Right. Yeah. Which, I, and I really enjoy Georgia O'Keeffe, uh, and but the reason I bring her up in particular is because there are those really distinct American elements, you know, of the American Southwest that that are her kind of mm-hmm. calling cards with the the flowers and the mountains and the, the vaginas, vaginas and the skulls and all these different things. Um, but now that now that we have this vocabulary where we can understand that the more of those kind of cultural touchstones were present in the painting, the more expeditious it was for the advancement of these ideas. That's conflicting and that creates tension. I think we can tease out that tension that in this apparatus, you do have the capitalists and the proletariat, right? You have painters who are laboring. Maybe some are working harder than others. Maybe some are more genuine than others, but you have painters and you have their patrons, basically. So it's okay, I think, to distinguish and bring out the antagonism that you can love the artist and hate hate the broader system that it, or, or not hate, but just criticize the broader system that uh, it's surrounded in, which I, I could get, like, I showed you the Zizek clip about the Titanic. Sorry to, to do that, to bring up. Did you? Oh, right. Yes. The, yes. I, the reading of the Titanic, that right. it's a classic, it's a classic bourgeois right. structure or myth that an upper class person, once they're feeling down on themselves and empty, um, needs to feast on the fresh blood of a lower class person mm-hmm. and get some of their vitality and earthiness and wildness. And um, I, I think you can definitely read that in the, you know, that New York art world of the time of someone like Peggy Guggenheim having a pathological need to get close to a gritty Jackson Pollock right. and feed on his his earthiness right. until he's spent and his body can be tossed away, which is, you know, what happens. Right. So Jackson Pollock isn't the person necessarily, necessarily to be blamed here, if there's anybody yeah. to be blamed. Um, which gives makes some room to still enjoy the art. It just creates a more complicated, more complicated context for it. Yeah. So yeah, uh, I think all that to say, what we know. If you're trying to venture into the art world, which we're doing, this is a self-guided quest into the art world. First of all, it's hard to find reliable people, um, and second of all, you you can't go in naive. You may get uh, very depressed at times and go throw away all your books. Because the well has been poisoned. I think that's mm-hmm. that's part of the, the thing to point out. Um, there's a lot of disappointment here. Uh, or, yeah, a, a lot of muddiness. But uh, we're looking for the gems. So we'll help you find the gems. Um, uh, what was I going to say? So, yeah, I think what we could talk about um, 
particularly is why this was, um, it, it really was, I think, a uniquely American mode of producing art. That is what Tom Braden and the boys in back saw in abstract expressionism. Not only that this is our team and we get to, you know, boost them up for everybody to see, um, but this is a, a uniquely American iteration of producing art. And what I mean by that is, um, you know, the artist creates a painting or whatever it is, uh, but in this context, and, and I guess in all, um, they're only a part of the machinery that produces the value that that will eventually come out of a Pollock. Say for, you know, a Pollock to sell for $140 million in the late 40s, that is an entire apparatus that um, Jackson is just one part of. Um, the entire web includes, uh, crucially, the patrons, the museums, the people who run the museums, and especially the critics. So the art critics who will write about art, talk about art, tell you why it's important. Um, if you're a billionaire listening, welcome. You know, you probably have a Pollock or two or, or whatever it is, and you may have $90 million stashed in that painting. It's really important that the world continues to agree that that is the value of the painting, that the person who painted it is important. Um, and, you know, dum-dums like us put our money in banks if you have any to spare. Um, that's not what rich people do. I mean, paintings are one of the best, most reliable speculative assets to stash money in that are always going to appreciate. And that's because their, um, their value is agreed on by this, uh, you know, intelligentsia who will tell you what it's worth. Um, so all that to say... Um, the, the names we're looking at here, uh, the MoMA, I mean, all right, let's take the CIA out of it for a minute, because I think that what she puts forward, which I think is correct, is that um, there's this turnkey operation, this mode of producing art in America that is emerging at this time, um, which is unique in its may, maybe just the intensity. Maybe it's not that different from what was happening in the Renaissance, but its intensity and its contradictions, I think, are unique. We could talk about that, but... Um, uh, for for abstract expressionism and Jackson Pollock in particular, it's MoMA, the Museum of Modern Art, who is responsible really for um, buying up a lot of these artists, displaying them, putting them out on exhibitions, and stacking hands behind this movement, basically. MoMA, of course, was founded by Abby Rockefeller. That's the Robert Barron's wife. Um, and... The first president was Nelson Rockefeller. He was the person in charge at the time this was all happening, later vice president. Um, and uh, his first director, I believe, was Alfred Barr. And Alfred Barr was a major tastemaker in New York. Um, just to give you a feeling of his, his sway, the way we think of uh, Van Gogh today, his you know star-level status in America had a lot to do with an exhibition that he curated in the way um, he kind of spun the story of Van Gogh to, to Americans. So he had a lot of sway at the time, and um, Saunders paints a pretty good picture of his wheeling and dealing behind the scenes to, to make this happen, to, put, to push the museum in this direction. Um, but also Peggy Guggenheim is someone who's somewhat uh, separate from that particular circle of influence, um, but was 
Pollock's first patron. He did his first mural for her. Sorry, not mural. Um, a large painting for her foyer for a party. Um, and uh, Marcel Duchamp said Pollock should do it as a mural, but he did it as a canvas, which is a, which is a, a different choice, which makes it a commodity. Um, Peggy Guggenheim, uh, and then Clement Greenberg, who was the number one apologist for abstract expressionism. And um, Greenberg's really important because he was, he was boosting this and he was boosting it explicitly in nationalist Cold Warrior tones. And from his first writing about art, um, it was, it, he made himself known as a Cold Warrior. Um, and so here, when one sees how much the level of American art has risen in the last five years, with the emergence of new talents so full of energy and content as Arshal Gorky, Jackson Pollock, David Smith, and the conclusion of Western, uh, then the conclusion forces itself, much to our own surprise, that the main premises of Western art have at last migrated to the United States, along with the center of gravity of industrial production and political power. Um, so I think it's hilarious to write in those terms. I mean, I, to me, like Clement Greenberg immediately declares himself a fraud. Like if you're looking at him as in 2020 and to hear how much he's talking about America and ragging on the Soviets and talking about freedom, it's ironically extremely tacky and kitsch and um, fraudulent. I mean, that's kind of beside the point, but I'll, I'll just say like, this is, this is the apparatus that picks up Jackson Pollock and turns him into beyond a commodity and an asset, somewhere, a vehicle for transporting and storing wealth. And Greenberg is also uh, pretty explicit that the, this structure is the one that needs to exist. He, he says that yeah. he, he compares the American art enterprise system um, with the Guggenheims and the critics and the Jackson Pollocks who get scooped up every 10 years and you know rise to stardom. He makes a connection to the Renaissance, right? Or he talks about kind of, you know, the era of patronage in Europe, whether it was with the church or with um, private landowners, um, that art has always in the West existed well, not always, but he's basically saying this is the way it's been and this is the way it needs to be now. That right. we need to have this patron class of conservative, wealthy people to prop up the wild, avant-garde, um, left-leaning people. Right. Um, that's how art is made. Right. And the, those avant-garde artists are themselves an outcropping of the ruling class who break away and live in bohemian enclaves and imagine themselves separate, but in fact are, are very well at home with the ruling class. So it's kind of a wink and a nudge that, hey, remember that we're on the same side here. You come from us. Um, together we are shepherding the world forward. You need our money and we need you to continue to put, you know, push our moral revolution or evolution, I guess. Um, and I mean, I guess we could talk about, <laughs> I don't know if he's wrong in that respect. It would be pretty hard to find a prominent avant-garde artist of the early 20th century who wasn't, you know, from very high uh, society to begin with. Right. I mean, even in the Dadaist Manifesto, it's calling out 
the intellectuals of the West to, you know, join together and call for revolution. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I mean, you have to point out there, like, the contradiction or the tension between the idea that there's going to be a Marxist revolution re- led by the pro- proletariat, but hey, we know that those dummies aren't going to figure it out on their own. There have to, have to be a few of us at the top to show them what to do. And that's not, I mean, you know, Marx did say things like that from time to time, that you, you'll you have these intel- intelligentsia who are, yes, bourgeois, but they're, they're class traders. They're going to they're gonna break out and lead the vanguard um, and do the revolution. And it, of course, brings up the question that I think is another central question of magic camp in general is is art actually beneficial to any political movement right um so if you know clement greenberg is saying yes you avant-garde artists need to fall in line fall in step with the structures that exist in order to continue making your work continue flourishing you could make a argument that yeah of course he's saying that because he knows and we all know that ultimately um the art isn't going to do anything it's right. not, it's not going to change it's not going to change that power structure um but uh, i don't know i mean the man, that's something to tease out could it if the structure were truly disrupted mm-hmm. right or do we only think art is limited in its function because we've never seen it function outside of the structure that we have in place. Right. Right? I don't know. Yeah, exactly. I, I mean, uh, I think you have to get real with yourself and saying if you're someone who fancies themselves an activist or an organizer or you're trying to make the world a better place. Or, yes, or, check all or, things. Or bring about some sort of change. Uh, art is not potentially not the way to do that. Right. Hello? Like... What you'll be doing is creating pictures. Right. Like that's that's what you'll be doing. Mm-hmm. Just to let you know, you're not you're not organizing people for like any right. sort of electoral campaign. You're not. You're certainly not taking up arms and organizing a militia. I mean, mm-hmm. I and it's hard for me to see how else <laughs> hey, things have ever gotten done. Beauty will save the world. Damn. Did you just come up with that? Nah, man. That's that's Dostoevsky. Um, <laughs> okay, let's let's bring up the explicit objection. Hey, th- this is the way it works. Like this is the Medici right. <laughs> patrons, you know. And it, if you take away the money and the power, then you lose the, the Michelangelos. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and again, you're saying like, yeah, that's true. That has been true, but it doesn't have to be true. Right. And we could imagine a different way of people making art that is not dependent on vast amounts of money. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is true, uh, like, the the way it works differently at this time in America is that there's no mass market for art. And there, I don't think there ever will be. Ever for, heard of Thomas Kincaid? <laughs> for, well, that's a good, that's a good point. Right. Um, but for, let's say, like, for going up and, you know, buying can- painted canvases, original canvases or, or whatever, in a way that's different from, like, Looney Tunes or Hollywood movies. <laughs> that genuinely did, you know, to a certain level, succeed in a meritocracy in the market, right? Like, they found a mass audience, and you could say that they succeeded in probably producing some good art. Um, 
I don't think that's probably ever going to be the case for, for let's say painting, right? And so there, basically the, the net result of that is there's no money for artists. There's no, like, you can't just get rich by being an artist or, or survive. I mean, pretty much you can't survive with the one caveat. However, there are a few very, very rich people who, when they want to boost voices and give money to certain causes, have bottomless money. And that's the story of the CIA at that time of, I mean, especially relative to their counterparts in Europe, were just drowning in gold and had an endless flow of uh, money coming to them with complete lack of accountability, right? Whatever they wanted to do, they could do. Um, bottomless expense accounts. It's just all these guys were just living in perks and going to lunch. and cool. Yeah. Um, and so the point being, when they see someone who they think is good for their cause, they can boost boost that signal, you know, and pour some money on it. And so if you're in the right place in the right time and you have a message that is either going to be, um, I mean, I think in our times you just have to be a complete reactionary asshole and they'll, they'll be money for you. So Sounds good. Yeah, just get on YouTube and eventually you'll, you'll start to get a bunch of money. Right. In those days though, it was more, we like these apolitical voices because we can say what we want to say about them. Jackson Pollock wasn't, you know, he wasn't talking about his art or writing about his art. He wasn't saying it was free enterprise painting or had anything to do with America. I mean, he actually did say it's a bit silly to even talk about American art. Like, uh, these borders are very porous. Um, but it's Clement Greenberg, and it's the rest of the apparatus that is saying this is what Jackson Pollock is about. Mm -hmm. um, All very interesting. I don't think we're necessarily going to come to any conclusions um, in our first episode of Magic Cam, but it brings up some of the most important questions that I think we're going to consider um, on this program. Uh, which essentially is, you know, in light of all this, what do you do? Is it possible? Is a free, um, socially beneficial, socially uh, useful, um, good art possible in society as it exists today? Mm -hmm. um, I don't know. I don't have. What, what do we? What do you do? How do you look at the past? How do you look at the past? art um, as it's taught in schools now in light of these things. I think I think the one thing we could say is you're not going to be able to do this by, you're not going to be able to do what you're just saying, emancipate yourself from these structures right. and produce an art apart from these structures without also changing the broader mode of production, not only of art, but the rest of the economy. So I, I think we probably would put that forward as a hypothesis is as long as this is this is where the money is contained by these classes as long as we have this hierarchy of right. classes, as long as the means of production is owned by a few, then art is going to be one of those things. Um, and even if in your head, you know, you, you manage to break away and imagine yourself as free, which, you know, is I guess part of Greenberg's, you know, you could give him credit for that is even if these artists think they live in their bohemian paradise, that they're not, you know, they're here in our world. I think he's right about that. Um, that I, I think we would agree, like, art, art's, art can't do it alone. Mm -hmm. You have to have a broader change of society. Right. Um, but I think we could talk about 
speculate and be utopian about what would that look like. Right. I think we should be a lot more utopian. Which is probably the first chance to mention Magic Camp. Two-week sessions starting at $3,000 a week. We're doing arms training. Um, Manual labor. Manual labor. Indoctrination. Printmaking. (laughs) And bookbinding. Art history. Flower pressing. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and um, send your kids. You have our word. No, no weird sex stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Any closing thoughts? Um, I, like I said, this is a self-led journey into art. If you have a, an instinctual drawing to art, like many people do, we would like to go with you. Um, but we're, we're this ain't your grandmother's art history podcast. That's right. We have a machete where we know the dangers ahead. So the first thing we're doing is cutting down. What what do you do with the machete? Cutting down the weeds. Yeah. If an anaconda comes, you could you could use the machete for that. Mm-hmm. All that to say, I mean the the well is poisoned. That's what you need to know. Um, and you're we're going to have to be hypercritical and realistic about. Um, about trying to find the good uh, amidst all of of this uh, nastiness. Right. Next week, uh, the tentative plan, well, we don't know if it'll come out next week, but next episode, the tentative plan is to discuss another intellectual guide for us in this journey, which will be John Berger. Um, It's surprising that we've gone this far in this episode without mentioning his name yet. Um, so if you want to prepare for uh, episode two of Magic Camp, pick up John Berger's Ways of Seeing. Yeah. Um, or go on YouTube and watch it because it's actually, it was originally a television series um, and it's pretty cool and fun to watch. Yeah, we're going to do Berger with Burgers where we yeah. both eat, eat in right next to the microphone, right. but we're also going to listen to ourselves eating. So it's auto ASMR, AASMR. Mm, yeah. Yeah. And talk about Berger. Um, I could close maybe with a, a with a word from Berger. Sure. I think that to give a, a generous reading to Pollock, quote, In this way, a mostly desperate body of art, which had at first shocked the American public, was transformed by speeches, articles, and the context in which it was displayed into an ideological weapon for the defense of individualism and the right to express oneself. Pollock, I'm sure, was unaware of this program. He died too soon, nevertheless. The propaganda apparatus helped to create the confusion surrounding his art after his death. A cry of despair was turned into a declaration for democracy. Damn. Dang, R.I.P. to a real one. Yep. This has been Magic Camp. I'm Paul Anderson. And I'm Banderson. And a po- this is a podcast about art and power. We'll see you tomorrow after school. <laughs> see ya. What do you think is more important? Don't think about it. Sensitivity to aesthetics or compassion? I think... It's a trick question. Yeah, I think they're the same thing. The same thing, same sides of a different coin.